Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Hello again. It's hour two of Mornings with Carmen. Just a reminder, you can share the show with others. If you um, if you subscribe to Mornings with Carmen as a podcast, we'd love for you to rate us wherever it is that you listen. Um, apparently, you know, people who listen on Spotify in particular, like they recently got these, uh, these, what, what do you call it, Paul, where... What didn't Spotify just tell everybody what they'd been listening to and for how long? Oh yeah, yeah. They they did their uh, well reflection back and all that. Yeah. I forgot the actual name, but yeah, yeah. So um, we I had a listener who screenshotted um, his mornings with Carmen listening on Spotify, and it was um, it was a lot. It was a lot, and he's like in the fourth percentile of all of our listeners on Spotify. And so I wondered to myself, I wonder if he has rated us. And so Brooks, if you're listening right now, which you probably are, um, you should rate us uh, as well. Uh, Apparently that helps. That helps other people see who we are and what we're doing. And so it's a way that you can help amplify the ministry to others. So there you go. Um, And if you're saying to yourself, I don't know how to listen to Mornings with Carmen other than driving in my car, um, you can download the Faith Radio app and the easiest way maybe to get that info is just to text the word APP, A-P-P, to 877-933-2484. There you go. Um, I want to talk about Daniel. I want to talk about um, the star of Bethlehem and its relationship to Daniel. Like, how did those wise men in the East, how did those guys know to be looking for a star and they'd been watching and waiting for a star for a really long time? time. And so how did they, like, how did they come to know that? How did they come to even know that God was going to send a Savior? How did they even come to know that there was a God in heaven? So um, there was a government employee named Daniel. I mean, that's the way you could think about him, right? And the reason that we're going to talk about him as an employee, and we're going to talk about King Nebuchadnezzar and ancient Babylon as his employer, um, as the government for whom he worked, um, it, that's because next up, we're going to talk with our friend Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com, and we're going to talk about um, the reality that Daniel worked for a difficult boss. <laughs> so I want to do the Daniel portion of the story in relationship to Advent, to the star of Bethlehem, um, and to the wise men. And then we're going to have a conversation um, about the workplace and the work environment where Daniel served so faithfully and so well. So, um, you know the story of Daniel. But one of Daniel's jobs uh, is often overlooked. King, King Nebuchadnezzar assigned Daniel to the high office of chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. So you could read about that in Daniel 5.11. Now, I will say that sometimes we are assigned tasks by secular employers that are contrary to our worldview. 
how do you think Daniel felt about, um, you know, having a business card, so to speak, that included that he was the chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners? Because after all, Daniel knew full well that divination and uh, and magic were contrary to um, God's will and the way that God wants his people to be engaging. He doesn't want them engaged in the dark arts. And here's Daniel, faithful Daniel, with chief of magicians on his business card. So um, another way of thinking about that, Daniel was the appointed chief of the Magi. The Magi! That's who we're talking about. So as Christmas approaches and we see images and we hear stories of the wise men, by the way, there were not three. There were three gifts, but there were probably lots of magi. I mean, it was probably quite a um, procession across the desert with uh, many, many people when the wise men came from the east following the star in order to pay homage to the newborn king. So lots of scholars believe that the Magi were Persian and and ultimately could be traced back to Babylon. So if you ever wondered what led the Magi, these wise men, to undertake a thousand-mile journey to Bethlehem, how did these Magi, how did these wise men even know this Jewish prophecy? What led them to believe this particular star was the one that would lead them to the great newborn king? The Magi must have had unmistakably clear astronomical, astrological evidence that urged them to take such an ambitious journey. In Matthew 2.2, the Magi indicate that they saw something in the night sky that was so significant that it convinced them to make this lengthy and dangerous trip to Jerusalem. This is where the prophet Daniel comes in. So not only was Daniel the chief of the Magi, but Daniel's prophecies became known throughout the ancient Near East. The Romans were aware of the prophecies of Daniel, who had, um, who had said that you know, this coming king of Israel would be the king of kings. So these first century magi would have, studied the, would have studied the writings of Daniel. Potentially, they would have studied other Jewish writings, um, maybe the book of Isaiah. So this connection between Daniel and the magi helps to explain why some 600 years later, the magi of that day still expected a Jewish king to arrive in Judea near the end of the first century. They followed the star based on their study, not only of the sky, but of the prophecies of a man named Daniel, who you will remember was not freely serving in the government of Nebuchadnezzar. So let's talk with our friend Bill English a little bit more about Daniel, um, about Daniel's faithfulness as an employee of, um, of, of a government in a job he didn't necessarily want and under a boss who he loved, but um, who was a bad boss nonetheless. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Our friend Bill English is back from BibleandBusiness.com. Hello, Bill. Hey, good morning, Carmen. 
I have all kinds of thoughtful and silly questions for you about oh. <laughs> about the Christmas season and going to work. You know, yeah. for some reason, silly is not a word that I um, associate with you. I know, so. I know, but let's just let's just imagine for a moment all of the silliness that takes place in relationship to um, it, it, work and workplaces um, during the Christmas season. There's like Secret Santa, right. which can get quite naughty. There's, um, you know, there are expressly Christmas parties and events and yet we live in a secular culture like i wonder about that there are there's all kinds of debauchery that takes place um apparently 20 percent of employees who participate in you know in in christmas activities with their workplace that excludes their spouses um leads to all kinds of extramarital naughtiness and so i just i mean i I got all kind i got all kinds of conversations we could have in relationship to um to this christmas season or the Christmas season and and the workplace. But I want to start with Daniel because you wrote a whole book on this, right? Working for a difficult boss. So let's talk about Daniel and his faithfulness, even in a job that he didn't necessarily want. I'm certainly not a job that he applied for. I mean, he's conscripted into it. Um, And then let's talk about serving under a bad boss. All right. Yeah, so just jump in. Like, let's oh. talk about like like remind <laughs> us. Well, specific, you had all these questions. So I know I I have so my I'm full of questions. That is my nature. Yeah. I am full. Yeah, I am a curious is. person. So um so talk about Daniel and assume yeah. that assume that somebody listening doesn't know who he is. Like right, let's just assume that. And so we regard Daniel as this incredibly incredibly faithful man. Um, but why so? Tell us about Daniel. Daniel is, along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three friends, those are kind of the four main characters in the first six chapters of Daniel. They are uh, young Jewish men, probably between somewhere between 18 and 22, I'm guessing, who are um, deported from Judah to Babylon, and they never see their homeland again. Um, interestingly enough, Ezekiel is also part of that deportation, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, the these men are top talent is how we would put it in uh, 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 business terms. They're they're sons of nobility. I think they were being groomed to be uh, part of the government in Judah and to be leaders of that country. Maybe not king, but certainly leaders. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes in these four young men a great deal of talent. And as Nebuchadnezzar was um, known for, he would take top talent of every country that he conquered and move that talent to Babylon and then, as you said, conscript them into working for his government. And that's exactly what happened to these four young men. And uh, they, right off the bat, you see in chapter one, Daniel and his friends realizing that their faith in God, their faith in Yahweh is more important than than uh, making Nebuchadnezzar happy. And so they go through a series of decisions that, that uh, make them uh, remain faithful to God. They, they do some things to honor the Lord, and, uh, but they end up completing the training course and working for Nebuchadnezzar as part of his, uh, as you said in your lead up, 
uh, spot, the, the, the astrologers, magicians, enchanters, and I forget the fourth category. But that's but that's what they that was the area that they worked in. Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar um, a, a very difficult interpretation to a dream, saves the necks of every magi in in Babylon as a result. That's in chapters uh, chapter two, and um, as you said later on in chapter five verse eleven, Nebuchadnezzar ends up appointing him as the leader of that whole whole magi um, crew. <laughs> Daniel, um, by the time we get to Daniel and the lion's den, which is a story everybody knows, we estimate he's somewhere between 75 and 80 years old. So he right, which, served, is not, which is not at all the visual we have. No, no, no. The pictures <laughs> we have, he's a young man. He's not. I mean, we, perpetually, we perpetually think of Daniel as a young man. <laughs> like he's well, like he a frozen probably, in time teenager, but he's not. He's not. He. Probably had a walker with tennis balls by the time he gets there. So <laughs> he, uh, uh, but he uh, he served by my research, if I remember correctly, he served, I think seven or eight different kings, and only two or three of them are mentioned in the Book of Daniel. But research archaeology would tell you that he served a number of other kings, and so he was a very successful, very talented administrator who was faithful to God and yet knew how to work for very godless bosses and uh, to provide uh, uh, an excellent work product in each of those uh, administrations. There's so much that we can learn um, from the life of Daniel about how to thrive, um, even in a work environment that you didn't choose and maybe under a series of difficult bosses. That's actually what Bill English's entire book is about, um, working for a difficult boss, lessons from the life of Daniel. So we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Um, maybe, you know, maybe thinking about Nebuchadnezzar or uh, or the Babylonian um, or other kings of the time is hard for you to imagine. But maybe you could imagine working for Ebenezer Scrooge. Like maybe you could imagine what it was like to be Bob Cratchit. Can you still thrive? Can you still faithfully thrive under a bad boss, even at Christmas? We're going to continue the conversation here in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. I mean, seriously, if all we had was nothing more than feelings, we would just be lost in a sea of mush. Hello, friend. Uh, I'm sure you have noticed by now that feelings are a terrible barometer of the truth. Our feelings are affected by the weather, world events, what we ate last night, whether or not someone we like or love texted or tagged us in a social post, how badly someone else sings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling lonely right now, I want you to ask yourself, am I really ever truly alone? Of course not. As a follower of Christ, Jesus promises to be with you always. He's literally with you right now in the thick of it, in the midst of whatever circumstances you're dealing with in your life. So I want to be a source of hope and encouragement to you today. If you are struggling to make it, even just to the next moment, if you're feeling lonely, text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. Daniel lived during a time period when um, his country, Israel, was overrun by foreign forces and he was deported as the son of a noble um, and conscripted 
into a job that he didn't necessarily want under uh, first a boss and then a series of bosses um, as one kingdom was uh, was overcome by another. We're talking with Bill English about his book, Working for a Difficult Boss, Lessons from the Life of Daniel. And we're doing so because it is because of Daniel and Daniel's service um, and Daniel's prophecies in relationship to the the king that will one day be born under a natal star, that the Magi actually show up in the Christmas story. They actually know that there will be a king of the Jews um, and they know where he will be born and they know what to be looking for in the sky because of Daniel's faithfulness um, in his job over the course of so many years. So, Bill, let's um, let's let's talk about um, not just maybe Daniel, but also like Bob Cratchit. Like why? I mean, Bob Cratchit, who works for Ebenezer Scrooge, that's a bad boss. Like, right. That guy is a bad boss. Um and yet we have scenes where Bob Cratchit is not only faithfully and humbly serving, but he prays for him. Like at their meal at his house, they're praying for Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah, it's working for a difficult, you know, I've worked for a difficult boss um, and it is difficult. I mean, it, it consumes, it just saps your energy. And if you let it, it saps your um kind of your thought cycles, maybe I can put it that way, and your emotional cycles, even when you're not at work. Um, praying for your difficult boss is probably one of the few things that you can do where uh, you don't have to interact with that boss. But yet, if we really believe in prayer, if we are Christians who claim and genuinely believe in in the power of prayer, then prayer is probably the one thing that we can do that has the most impact on a given situation. I have prayed for my difficult boss and on more than one occasion. And I can tell you that this boss has moderated over time a great deal. And I think in part because uh, God is getting a hold of this guy and is, is working in his heart. Um, but it is not easy. It is just, it's just got hard to work for a difficult boss. Um, people feel called in for-profit businesses many times. Many Christians feel called to be in a certain business because they know that their difficult boss needs them, but not in the way that everybody thinks. They know that that boss needs them from a spiritual and a and, and an emotional standpoint, not necessarily a, a skills standpoint, if I can put it that way. Uh, what's really difficult, I think, um, or is at least equally difficult, is when your difficult boss is a ministry leader and you feel called to serve God in a particular ministry and uh, your difficult boss is the senior pastor or is the ministry leader or is uh, one of the board members. Um, I have seen people um, age, you know, twice their age, and so to speak, uh, because of, of a difficult boss in ministry. And it's not pretty. And uh, you wonder kind of, why do people stay? Well, they stay because God called them. And and they will tell you, once I, I, I've asked God to release me. He won't release me. I've got to stay here and serve. Daniel didn't have that option to be released, but he still uh, served these difficult bosses in astounding ways. I'm thinking about the stories that... Um... Os Guinness tells um, 
and and we know about um, the Guinness family and and how they saw the needs of the average people who were working for them and how they actually introduced the whole concept of employee benefits. And so when we think about um, what's available today in particular environments, unemployment compensation, unions, um, welfare, um, uh, even, you know, even neighbors and friends who have enough to share, I, I think that we don't, it's hard for us to imagine circumstances where all of those versions of the safety net don't exist and um, and where employers um, did not see themselves as needing to be concerned for the welfare of their people. And so whatever you're experiencing today in your work environment, um, just recognize that there are now uh, around the world more people serving in conscripted roles, we would call it modern day slavery, than at any other time in human history. And so if you think these days are are gone. If you think the days of Daniel are gone, if you think the days of Bob Cratchit are gone, they are not. Um, I hope that you are not suffering in that particular way in a conscripted role. But if you are, we want to lift up Daniel today um, as a as an exemplar. Um, and I also want to say that God sees you, and God knows right where you are. He knows your suffering. Um, he knows your need. And in the midst of it, you you can be faithful to him, even in a job you don't necessarily want, and even under a boss who is not treating you as the image bearer that you know you are. And so um, we want to encourage you during this Christmas season, and I, I certainly want to encourage you if you are a boss um, to treat your people well and exemplify the nature of um, of good godliness. Um, in your employ of um, of precious people. Bill, maybe speak a word to business owners during this holiday season and um, and encourage them to, you know, well, to do what you do, which is to treat people well. You know, I, I want to pick up on something that you said uh, that bosses, you know, decades ago just didn't treat their employees well at all. That still goes on today. Uh, I, I would love to see God, and my whole life is about trying to provide theological reasoning for business owners. I'd love to see Christian business owners, and I estimate there's about 2 million nationally, to begin to think theologically about their businesses. And and to those who are business owners today, you have a unique stewardship opportunity and responsibility before the Lord to manage your business to further the kingdom of God. That business is not yours. Those profits are not yours. Um, everything that you have belongs to the Lord and should be managed under God's direction. Um, uh, please uh, leverage any one of the many ministries out there to help you learn how to think theologically before you think of what I'll call American conventional wisdom. Uh, when it comes to your business. Uh, there's C12, there's CBMC, there's several faith and work uh, groups out there. There's my site, Bible and Business. Uh, but, you know, there's, y- you got to learn uh, to think about what you do, the decisions you make, the people you employ, how you manage them, the profits that you generate. It all has to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And until you get there, 
um, you're gonna you're, you're you're really not going to hit the mark of of what God is after what uh, for entrusting a business to you. It all belongs to Him, um, and it we does. who belong and right and those who belong to Him um, need to live and lead as if it all belongs to Him, and that's so so helpful. Hey, Bill English is available to help you think theologically and um, and and live into your calling. Um, as a good steward of all that God has placed you over as his manager in the world today. And so check out what's going on at BibleAndBusiness.com. The book we talked about today, Working for a Difficult Boss, Lessons from the Life of Daniel. It's a great encouragement for you know each and every one who maybe you're in a job that you don't necessarily want or you're serving under a boss that is, uh, you know, less than the fullest expression of Christ in the world today, right? So that's pretty much all of us. Yeah. 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 So, um, Bill, as always, what a blessing. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. So what does it um, mean to be holy as God is holy? What does that mean? What does it mean to be holy as God is holy? First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. As he who called you is holy— you also be holy in all your conduct. God literally says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Okay, so what does that mean and how is that possible? Like, what does it mean to be holy as God is holy? I mean, only God is God, right? So how could I be holy? I'm, I'm not God. How is that possible? Roger Helland is going to join us again um, from Calgary, and we're going to actively pursue God's presence that as he is holy, we who draw unto him might be holy as well. So, in short, right, you satisfy the command to be holy as God is holy by snuggling up to the one who is holy. But how do you snuggle up <laughs> to a holy God? Roger Helland is going to join us next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Roger Helland is back pursuing God's presence, a practical guide for daily renewal and joy. Roger, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? You sound well, vibrant. I know. That's because I've been up for a long time. How? How? What time is it in Calgary? Uh, it is 6.30 a.m., but I'm good. I'm usually up at 5.30 anyway, pursuing that's God. Good. So, yeah, that's I'm good. good, yeah. Yeah, I want, that's coffee. what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about okay. pursuing God's presence. And just to let everybody know, we do have copies to give away today. So if you heard our prior conversation and you were longing for uh, a copy of this book or you're listening now and as we talk, you're like, hey, I really, I would really like to um, have practical help in pursuing the presence of God in my life. We got copies to give away. Text the word book to 877 Eight four. Um, I'm gonna Roger. I'm gonna read you something that you wrote. Okay. The key to fervent prayer, effective Bible study, intimate worship, anointed preaching, authentic followership, active churches, and flourishing families is God's reverberating presence. What What does that mean? What What does it mean that it's God's presence that is actually the key to a flourishing life? 
Great question. We are in relationship with God. And when we encounter him or he encounters us, there are life-giving, transformational, fruit-bearing aspects of his existence that ought to impact us. Um, mm -hmm. So you think of it in two ways. So the theologians talk about the omnipresence of God. So he's present everywhere all the time. It's like the air we breathe. We're not always aware of that, but if you sit back and you start to pay attention to your lungs and your breathing, you realize, yeah, I'm breathing and there's air. Or if you, you know, during COVID, a lot of people struggled with their lungs and, and you know, it affected lungs and it killed some people. So you know, obviously breathing, you become more aware of it when it becomes acute or it's pointed out. That's the omnipresence of God. The manifest presence of God is when he comes in close. And when there's personal interaction, there's encounter in such a way that it, we we are very attentive and we know that the Lord is with us. And so I think what happens is a lot of times, certainly in my life, is it's easy to kind of live life without an awareness of God. We carry on. We drive to work. We get busy. We're on freeways. We stand in lines. We're at work. We're at family. We're or at church, whatever, and we kind of go about our business in a way that doesn't always pay attention to the Lord. And I think when it comes to pursuing his presence, we become aware, we become more attentive, we begin to experience his transforming power in our lives in such a way that we begin to flourish, because the key really to pursue his presence is awareness, it's, it's attentiveness, it's openness, it's prayerfulness, and all the elements of scripture I think we have show us how to get that done so that we actually experience the abundant life that Jesus talks about in the family, in the workplace, in our churches, in our communities, in our personal lives. Um, let's talk about how um, how you first experienced the Holy Spirit, um, because this has to start somewhere for each yeah. and every one of us. So tell yeah. us about like how, how it started for you. Well, I go back to my background. So people ask me, what's your background? My one word answer is I was a pagan. <laughs> I was I was a bad boy. So I grew up in a non-Christian environment in Southern California. And Jesus was a swear word in my family. Never went to church, never read the Bible. And, uh, you know, religion and Christianity was, you know, foreign in, in my life until I, I came into the awareness of God's presence for really for the first time in my life. when a friend of mine uh, became a Christian. Back then, if if people have seen the Jesus Revolution movie, uh, I, I was sort of saved on the fringes of that, the hippie movement. Southern California, a lot of us long-haired druggies were searching for meaning, and it's really we're searching for God. And I was actually stoned on LSD at the time, and he began to share the gospel, believe it or not. And I, I've, I experienced, when I look back now, I look, I, I can describe what it was in terms, it was the presence of God because he really got my attention. I felt this, this pull, this gravitational nudge into my heart, my mind that was overwhelming. I looked up into the Southern California sky. It was about 10 o'clock at night. I went through it in December and I said, Lord, if you're real, I want to believe. And I knew in that moment, I had an encounter that I had never had before. He came searching for me. A couple of weeks later, uh, I was in the U.S. Army <clears throat> up in Fort Lewis, Washington, and I was reading, I think it was I think it was the Gospel of John, and I felt this inrush of light and love and joy and, and overwhelming 
sense of, again, what I look back now knowing it was a presence of God. It was my personal Pentecost and he encountered me with his presence. So I knew there was a decisive encounter that really uh, was a turning point, a tipping point in my life to really follow him and, and pursue his presence. And I've had subsequent encounters all along since, since I've been a Christian. Now let's, um let's acknowledge just for a moment okay. that someone might be tempted to rationalize those experiences away and say, you know, Correct. you're just fooling, you're just fooling yourself. Um, right. So how do we discern that what we're feeling isn't um, drug induced ecstasy or, indige- <laughs> or indigestion or right. Um, right or yeah or something else right or lust? I mean, who knows? I mean, like, how do we how do we distinguish the very human feelings that we have in relationship to all kinds of things um, from the actual manifest presence of God? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I deal with a lot of those kinds of questions in my book because I know they're, they're substantive. I, I know we can become emotional. We become, we can become irrational. We can sort of get caught up in, in the euphoria of excitement. And, you know, we, we have these, times in our lives, you know, we're emotional people. I get it. And and God gave us emotions. And yet the joy of the Lord is our strength. We know there are encounters with God that have emotional components to it. However, having said that, I'm a firm uh, believer in we've got to be able to align scripture with experience. We have to align experience with scripture. So for me, the go-to content is always the bible what does the bible point to as to how god speaks how does he encounter people what are the fruit of of the work in our lives that demonstrate that it's god at work and not just our the flesh the devil our own imagination and i think um on that basis when we see the fruit for example for me I was converted from a pagan to end up becoming a pastor and a pursuer of God and one who's committed to presence. The devil isn't about those kinds of things, and neither is the flesh. The flesh doesn't incite prayerfulness. It doesn't incite a pursuit of God and holiness and and, and getting rid of sin. I mean, I was pretty hooked on drugs and immorality and a whole range of dark, you know, lifestyle that, you know, you just can't by your own willpower overcome. For me, it was a work of the Spirit of God. And so there are theologians that give us really, I think, clear ideas of how do we detect a move of the Spirit of God over against just ideas or imagination or emotion. Jonathan Edwards is is one of the key theologians where he says, you know, here's the distinguishing marks of the Spirit of God. And, you know, is it Christ-centered? Does it conform to the Scripture? Does your experience and your encounter um, overcome the kingdom of darkness and advance the kingdom of God? And so are, I mean, am, I, am I becoming more passionate about Jesus, worshiping him, surrendering to him, wanting to obey him, wanting to read his word? Is there fruit in my life? Am I better today than I was last year? You know, and so there, I think there's markers along the way that indicate that it's a genuine move of the spirit of God and not just enthusiasm or emotion. That's so good. That's so helpful. Hey, we are 
uh, talking with Roger Helland. The book is Pursuing God's Presence, a practical guide for daily renewal and joy. We are giving away copies today. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. I have a four-part question. I'm going to hold that one off. Um, And I'll just ask this one, not that it's simple, but that I feel like you will be able to simply answer it. What's the difference between a temporary filling and a long-term fullness of the Holy Spirit in a believer? Yeah, it's a great question. So I deal with that in more detail in my chapter uh, around, you know, power and purity of the Spirit being saturated by the Spirit of God. What we see, particularly in the New Testament, are two types of fillings. And so the, the English word fullness and filling really can't capture what's going on with some of the Greek words. So for example, in the book of Luke, or excuse me, the book of Acts that Luke wrote, he also wrote the gospel of Luke. He, he really showcases this understanding that, uh, for example, in Acts chapter two, that, that the believers in the upper room as they were praying, they were filled with the spirit. And that, was an encounter that was in the moment. Uh, we also learn in other places where Peter and where uh, some of the early followers in, in the early church, for example, at a prayer meeting in Acts chapter four, where the, the house shook, it says they were filled with the Spirit, Spirit and they proclaimed the gospel with boldness. Uh, that That's sort of a temporary, momentary encounter of the spirit where there's a there's there's a filling and there's empowerment there's witness there's boldness and it can lift you know and so there's these encounters that happen we see it in the book of acts for being repeated at different times but then there's also another word that luke uses but paul also uses what's called the fullness of the spirit and that's where there's this abiding sense of the character of god of the spirit it is it permeates our character and our conduct and our conversation. Uh, It talks about Barnabas, a man full of the spirit. It talks about Peter, a person full of the spirit. Uh, Paul invites us to be filled with the spirit. And and the word indicates there more of a a permeating influence that the spirit is in control of our life. And and it it radiates the presence of God in such a way that it it bears testimony to his, the reality in our life. So there's filling and there's fullness. We want both. We want those times that some of the ancient uh, early writers uh, around this idea of unction. I love the word unction. That when we pray or we prophesy or we preach, there's those times where the the power of the Spirit is so strong that it's attended by His presence, a manifest presence that they call unction, authority, anointing is another word. That would be the filling uh, for an encounter in the moment. But then we want to cultivate the fullness of the spirit where we're full, overwhelmed and, and, and con- controlled by the spirit. And there's ways we get that done. And uh, so I cover that quite a bit in the book. I think it's important that uh, we experience both dimensions. So good. It's so good. Now, see, now you want mm-hmm. a copy. And so you want to enter the drawing for the copies we have to give away today uh, of um pursuing God's presence, you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. I have a four-part question. When we come back for Roger Helland, I'm going to ask him, how did God send his manifest presence in the days prior to Jesus? How did he show up in the life and through the presence of Jesus? 
How did he show up and how does he show up through the Holy Spirit since Pentecost? And what does the Bible reveal about how God will manifest his presence in the future? That four-part question next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Listen to Faith Radio live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app at your app store today. All right, we're talking about pursuing God's presence with Roger Helland. My four-part question, how did God send his manifest presence in the days prior to Jesus? So we're talking about the Old Testament and then how in the person of Jesus or in the days of Jesus and then how through the Holy Spirit since Pentecost and then what does the Bible reveal about how God will manifest his presence in the future? Like, is there a difference? Is there, you know, is there something we can look at where, you know, it is different in terms of how God manifests his presence. Yes, chapter two. (laughs) (laughs) From Eden to eternity is how I capture this. There's a lot of uh, content to to answer that. But let let me boil it down to answer your question. So God, he wants to walk with us. So in the Garden of Eden, he walked with Adam and Eve, and then sin brought the fracture, and they were banished from the Garden basically forever. Uh, and so God had a dilemma on his hands. How is he going to restore the the fall of humanity and bring them back into fellowship with himself? But he also had another challenge, another problem. He's a holy God and he'll consume whatever's around him, <laughs> the consuming fire. Okay. So how does God overcome that? He does it number one through building the tabernacle. So Israel is redeemed from Egyptian bondage. Moses leads the people of Israel, uh, first into the wilderness, they go to Mount Sinai, they get the law, and God says, okay, the way that he is going to encounter his people, that they can approach him, is through the tabernacle and through the priesthood. So there's sacrifice, there's priests, and then there's a tabernacle. It's really the house, it's it's the portable tent where God took up residence. And so there was the way in which God says, okay, here's how I'm going to manifest myself to my people, and that they would follow him. Uh, you know, the pillar of cloud and the fire uh, by night, the pillar of cloud uh, during the day. Fascinating account in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But God wasn't satisfied with a a temporary habitation. It was portable. It moved with the people in Israel for 40 years, and then he was moving them to the promised land. He wanted to take up permanent residence, and he did in Jerusalem. He also comes with his presence through his prophets and through his priests and through his kings. So that was, that's sort of the, the personalities that carry the presence of God. Uh, but more centered around the, uh, the places of his habitation, which were fixed. And so he came to Jerusalem. And so David, we know, had his heart to build a temple. And uh, his son Solomon became the temple builder. So Jerusalem, uh, the temple was built. So the temple, of course, is the, the house of God. It, it's, the, it's, the, it's the physical location where God would come with his presence. He would communicate his law to his people. And the whole sacrificial system, again, was to mediate that place of, of uh, consecration, forgiveness. God came to the tabernacle, the temple in the Old Testament, came through prophets, priests, and kings, and uh, certain people where he poured out his spirit, but not comprehensive over all the people of God. That was being reserved for the coming of Jesus and then the church. So there's a shift 
we see in salvation history that when Jesus came to earth, he now became the incarnate temple of God. He's the 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 um, God on earth present uh, in a person in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he says he tabernacled among us and we saw his glory. John talks about that in John chapter one. Jesus became the physical manifestation of the presence of God as a as a temple. But just think of it, if Jesus was still here, he'd probably, probably still be in Israel and Jerusalem and everybody have to stream there to get to him. Uh, it would create a lot of <laughs> attention. So he's, I'm going back to heaven and I'm going to send another alongside to uh, continue my work, which is the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts chapter one, he sent the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two to indwell uh, his people. And now the church has become the tabernacle or the temple of God, a living holy priesthood that carries his presence throughout the world. And so now we are living temples, living, breathing, walking, talking houses of prayer is what I call us, uh, by, by the indwelling presence of the spirit poured out in Acts chapter two and beyond. Uh, and then <clears throat> in eternity, we learn in the book of Revelation, basically chapters 20 to 22, that God will take up residence in the new Jerusalem, which is heaven itself being brought to earth. There will be no temple. There will be no sun and moon and no uh, oceans and seas. God himself will be uh, <clears throat> the temple. He will manifest his presence for all eternity, his glorious, the glorious radiance of who he is. So we have a fascinating picture of that throughout scripture that I cover in uh, chapter two, from Eden to eternity. I love it. I love it. It's such a gift to um, oh. to have it shared in such a um, comprehensive and yet just now such a concise way. So thank you so much. Um, Roger Helland is uh, a prayer ambassador for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Um, he is a prayer warrior, and he um, he gives us this gift of not only his story of his own pursuit of God's presence, but how you and I can walk with God. It's a practical guide for daily renewal and joy. We are giving away copies today. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Roger, thank you so much for blessing us today. It's been my pleasure. May the presence of the Lord permeate all your listeners and hearers, whether they're driving or in an office or in their home or walking outside, uh, wherever they're at. God bless each and every one of you today. Amen. Amen. And you as well. Let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, um, to join us in reading the Bible together during the season of Advent. It's not too late. You can you can still join us at MyFaithRadio.com. You can download a free Advent reading plan and you can also um, subscribe there to receive the Reading the Bible Together podcast. New conversations every single week uh, during the season of Advent. So we want, we want to be with you. Um, we want to join you as you walk with God in this season of Advent. And so join us in doing that at MyFaithRadio.com. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God still wants to walk with you in the cool of the day, just as he walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he has done what is necessary 
that you can draw unto him. So receive the good gift that God offers, the redeeming power of Christ himself, that the Holy Spirit might dwell within you, that you might draw unto God and be holy as God is holy. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.